Peace be with you. Uh, it's always always good for me to be here, be able to uh, have an opportunity to teach God's word. And uh, this third week in Advent, we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah, as Brandon read to us. Um, and if you've been around for a while, I'm sure you're familiar that I'm uh, I'm going to pray again. Nothing against Brandon, uh, but it it certainly helps me. So if you'd indulge me for a minute. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that where we can hear from you, that you break the silence and speak to us. Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of the hope that you spoke through your prophet Isaiah. God, may we feel that this season, feel the hope of a God who comes to us. So Lord, in this time, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. In 1965, Jean Rayborg had everything. She had the American dream. Successful husband, uh, two kids that she loved, a job of her own that was great, a home that was just perfect. It seemed that everything had gone well. But just 12 months later, she'd be separated from her family by concrete and steel and a straitjacket. That in 1965, everything was going up and she couldn't imagine a better life for herself, but just 12 months later, she would find herself alone and isolated and wondering, has God forgotten? Because the only thing that she had continually coming as she would sit in her room was that this is your fault. You've committed an unpardonable sin, and God is not coming for you. We celebrate this season of Advent, particularly because we want to enter back into that ancient anticipation. That for 400 years, God had gone silent. For 400 years, fathers had sons, and sons had fathers, and yet no word was heard from God. For 400 years, one kingdom would fall and another would raise up, all of them tramping down God's people, and the whole time them wondering, has God forgotten? Because one of the last words that God would give to his people before that season of silence was a promise that the silence will be broken by a voice a voice crying in the wilderness, a voice saying that God is coming for you. But for 400 years, there was no voice. There were no prophets. God was not speaking. So like Jean, like the people of God in centuries past, we want to step back into that anticipation, remembering that there was a day when God broke into our bleak world. And when God would make everything new. So we want to step into that, particularly through Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 that uh, tells us of this man from God. 
this promised man from God whom God would use to change everything. And the prophet tells us a few things about him. The first one, most specifically in, chapter, in verse 1, that the Spirit of the Lord God would be on him. That he would be anointed by the Lord to bring good news to the poor. And you and I don't normally talk about people being anointed, uh, unless maybe you come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background. But for us, this is sort of a foreign idea, to be anointed. We, that's not obvious to us. Well, for in the Old Testament, that God would speak of anointing a leader as a way of setting them apart for a particular purpose. For example, in Exodus chapter 29, as God through Moses is establishing the priesthood that would oversee all the sacrifices and help uh, Israel uh, lead them into the worship of God, God told Moses, hey, take Aaron and his sons, and I want you to anoint them. I want you to pour oil on them. Purpose being it's a symbol that the Spirit of God would come on them in a unique way so that they would be able to lead God's people into worship, that they were set apart for this particular purpose. So God says that they are anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel the prophet is speaking to the king Saul, and he says, Saul, don't you know that God has chosen you? Using the same word that's translated anointed, that God has set you apart for this particular purpose. The Spirit of God has come on you for this particular purpose. So for God to say that someone was anointed was to set them apart for them to be formally recognized as fulfilling a role that not just anyone could fill, but that a particular person had to fill. But what's also interesting, when we first read these verses, it sounds like, well, maybe Isaiah's saying this, right? He wrote it, it's his book, it, it would seem that way. But what's interesting about Isaiah's book is that in certain places and in different ways, this other voice breaks in. And it's almost indistinguishable. If we're just reading through and we're not really paying attention to the details, it can sound like Isaiah is saying this. But when we stop and listen, we understand that there's, this is a different voice speaking now. This isn't just Isaiah, but this is one uh, that Isaiah will call all the way back in chapter 11, the root of Jesse, the son of King David, who would be a king like David but greater than David. In Isaiah 11, we're told that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we get this picture of someone who is man but greater than man, someone who is like a king but greater than a king. And Daniel will tell us a similar, similar thing in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when he tells us that he saw a vision that with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, that his dominion is everlasting, it shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The same son of man in Daniel chapter 7 is the same one who is saying that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This isn't just a man. This, this is some other kind of spirit-filled man sent from God to do something that no priest from Aaron could do, to be a king that even the greatest King David couldn't be like. He's sent for a particular purpose and for a particular 
reason. And that reason, as Isaiah goes on, verses 2 and 3, is to come with a message. We're told that this, that this Spirit-filled man was anointed, that the Spirit of God was on him to bring good news to the poor. He'll go on and say that He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. He's given a message of freedom and a message of comfort. That this freedom is meant to be good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to free those who are in captivity. And when Isaiah and the prophets speak of the poor, they're not just saying those who are just without financial means. It's a way of describing those who are destitute, helpless, and hopeless. Those who are pushed to the margins and forgotten. Those who are looked down and considered less than. Those who aren't given their fair, their fair due or what's right and just. That's a timely word for us, especially with the things that we've been considering as a nation. Because I think we're aware that the poor, it's not always obvious. We've got a very particular view of who we think the poor are. And the Lord is saying to us, no, it's far bigger. It's far bigger than that. And I'm coming from, with a message for all of them. He also tells us that this man comes with a message to bind up the brokenhearted, and particularly that he would proclaim liberty to captives. And the reason that's so interesting is that he's taking us back. He's taking us all the way back to the very beginning in Leviticus chapter 25. And I know most of you are very familiar with Leviticus, so uh, if you just indulge me for a minute. But one of the things that God wants to set up for His people, the reason that He establishes all these feasts and uh, celebrations and uh, sacrifices is to, create, is to remind them throughout their, their year that God is with us, that, there is, that sin has separated us, but God is coming for us. So their whole calendar was set up to remind them of this, that even their weeks were set up to remind them of who God is and what he's done. So God would say that just as I worked for six days in creation and rested on the seventh, so you should rest from all your labor on the seventh day. That he would even tell them that for six years you can farm, you can work the ground, you can plant, and you can eat from it. But on that seventh year, leave it alone. Don't plant, don't harvest, don't work it. It was a reminder to them, again, that God worked for seven days and that he rested. And so they should work for, I'm sorry, worked for six days and then rested. That they should work for six and then rest on a seventh. But it was also an act of faith. God calling them, remember, I am the one that for six years provided for you. And I won't cease to provide for you on the seventh. And after this cycle of six years of work and seven years of, of rest, the total of 49 years, there came to be what the Lord called the year of Jubilee, this 50th year. Where after this cycle of seven years, that we would come to this 50th year 
In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, he says this, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That this would happen after the Day of Atonement. The day when God would symbolically for a whole year pardon the sin of God's people. And the very next thing, they'd sound a trumpet and say, everything is to be as it was. So if you had gotten into a debt that you couldn't pay and so you had to come into an indentured servitude under another, that on that 50th year they'd say, go back home, your debt's forgiven. Doesn't matter if you still got 100 years left to pay, it's gone. That on that 50th year, if you had to sell your land that had been given to your fathers, the, the people who then owned it would say, you have to give it back to them. That what you have lost will be restored. This year of Jubilee was meant to remind them of what God has done and point them to the day when God would restore everything, not just nations, not just finances, not just boundaries, but the universe. And the sad thing is, Israel never had that. They never had that year of Jubilee. They never even rested on that seventh year when God told them to. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's why God sent them into exile. Again, a reminder that sin separates us from God. Just as Adam and Eve sinned and were sent out from the Garden of Eden, so Israel had sinned and was sent out of the land of promise. The land might rest. But then he sends prophets like Isaiah saying, the day will come. The day will come when liberty will be proclaimed to the whole earth. He brings that message of freedom, but he also brings that message of comfort. As we read, he says that he will bring this message that will comfort all who mourns. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. And he talks about ashes and headdresses and all things that honestly, we don't really, we don't really know what that looks like. Because we don't grieve that way. Right? In Isaiah's day, if they were grieving the loss of a family member, a friend, some sort of injustice, they would tear off their clothes, pour ashes on their head, and go around wearing something like burlap. And they would cry aloud in the streets as a way to get out the, the mourning and the grief that was in here. That inescapable sense that something is not as it should be and I can't get it out. We don't do that, but we go to a funeral and we'll wear all black. Uh, we'll put our, our, our flags up at half-mast. Or maybe more closer to home, we'll sit in our PJs and binge watch Netflix while we eat ice cream. All of it is trying, it's all the same thing. You know, something's not okay and I can't fix it. And I just need, I just need to grieve. He's saying this message that will come, this message of comfort. It's not that you've got to take this off, but he will come with a message that will take away the ashes, that will take away the grief, that will clothe you in something new and beautiful that you could never have dressed for yourself. 
that he's saying to us that the time is coming when this spirit-filled man of God will come with a message that will pick you up, get rid of the PJs, put away the ice cream, and dress you in clothes that you never thought possible. Clean you up in a way that you thought, man, that's just too far gone. He's coming to comfort. And I find it so interesting that he says that the result of this comfort would be that we would be like oaks of righteousness. And that's the imagery that Old Testament will pick up here and there, uh, specifically in places like Psalm chapter 1. And it, it kind of just got me thinking, like, what's so special about oak? Like, I know people talk about it, and uh, you know, again, like, oh, you look at the Hebrew, and what does it say? Well, it says oaks. So, uh, so I was just like, I'll just look up oak. Right? And see maybe what's so special about it. And the thing that I found is that for centuries, throughout human history and across all culture, oak trees were prized for both beauty and strength. So the Vikings and all of their terrorizing all across Europe, sailing seas that thought these are impassable, they would use oak trees to build their ships. That when, uh, that when England would was transitioning into a, a commonwealth and not under a monarchy, and they were building their halls of government, that they built the, the house of commons out of oak to symbolize strength and beauty. That when people uh, make wine or sherry, brandy, whiskey, scotch, bourbon, they use oak because there's something about it that uniquely imparts both a beauty of color and flavor that nothing else can match. I found out that oak is, I, I'm not musical, so I didn't know this, but oak is actually one of the better woods in making drums because it has a better sound, better tone that no other woods can match. That the oak, or that the bark is dried and used in medicine. That there's some property to it that helps medicine work in the body. Again, I, didn't, I had no idea. Uh, but what's even more fascinating is that there are some oak trees that, for, that live for well over a thousand years. And all the Aggies in the room know that there's apparently some oak trees that if you get engaged under, your marriage will apparently last forever. Uh, not an Aggie, so I didn't quite understand that one. But for, uh, what dawned on me is that throughout time in history, Across all cultures, people would look at a tree like an oak tree and say, That's, that is a symbol of strength and beauty. But there's nothing else like it. And, you know, I don't know that Isaiah has all of this in mind when he's, when he's writing this and saying that we'll be like oaks of righteousness. I don't know. But I can't help, I can't help but enjoy the imagery. That when this spirit-filled man of God who is coming and will bring a message of comfort and hope and freedom. He's saying what it will produce. It will produce a people of strength and beauty. That God would be praised. What, I, what struck me about that is that the comfort that God brings. Comfort that God brings produces that beauty and strength. So that means it's not, it's not trite or empty pity. It's not well-meaning but impotent to do anything. That the comfort God offers is able to transform even the worst of us. 
So stepping into this season of Advent, longing for God to come, we know that the message only He can bring is the only one that can break into our bleak world and actually give comfort. And actually give freedom. But what's so powerful about this text is he doesn't even stop there. That he's saying this spirit-filled man from God who will bring this message of freedom and comfort, he, he also says that this same message will rebuild cities. That it will restore these ancient places, these desolated places that for centuries have just been wastelands. Isaiah will say elsewhere, chapter 58, verse 12, the same sort of promise that your ancient ruins will be rebuilt, that you will raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. A different prophet, prophet Amos, chapter 9, verse 14, expands on this and says that I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. That this rebuilding of cities isn't just that we would have a good city or a nice place to live in, but it's pointing us back. It's pointing us back when God, had, when God made for man every garden and every vineyard, and all of them bore great fruit. But again, because of sin that was lost, forgotten, and these vineyards have become filled with thorns and weeds. And God's saying, there's coming a day. And through this man with his message, I'll restore everything that was lost. And you might be wondering, how in the world can a message, how can a word rebuild a city? Right? Because, I mean, just right next door, we pass it every week, is, is an incredibly torn down and worn out building filled with broken glass and broken windows, constantly boarded up, and yet it sits next door to us. As every week we open up this word from God, and every week we sing about the words from God and the hope that it brings and the restoration that it brings, and it still stands there crumbling, filled with God knows what. So how is it that a word can rebuild cities? How is it that a word can bring strength and beauty? What's so powerful about this passage is that it's precisely the one that Jesus reads when he begins his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, as Jesus begins, he spends his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. And then he is baptized to identify with us as sinful men. And he enters right into the synagogue opens up to Isaiah and reads the first two verses. And, man, if there ever was a scenario for a mic drop, this is it. Because Jesus walks into this synagogue and says, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me. It's on me. That I have been anointed by God to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He rolls up the scroll. He looks at these people, these people who watched him from childhood, and he says, today, this is fulfilled. Today, 
It's a bold statement. And easily to just push it out of your mind like, okay, Jesus. But you know what Luke does? He shows us. In Luke chapters 4 and 5, he begins to show us what the word of this spirit-filled man from God will do. In Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, Jesus encounters a man possessed by a demon. You know how he delivers him? Through a word. In Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 39, Jesus comes to Peter's house and finds Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever, laid out. You know what Jesus does? We're told that he rebuked the fever. And immediately it was gone. In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, a man with leprosy comes to him. Leprosy is a disease that makes your skin melt off your bones. And this poor man comes to him and says, if you, if you will, I'll be clean. And Jesus says to him simply, I will be clean. And again, Luke tells us immediately, the leprosy left him. The verses right after that, some men would bring their friend to Jesus. He was paralyzed. We don't know how. We don't know for how long. But we do know that there was such a crowd that they couldn't even bring him in the front door of the house where Jesus was. So they had to dig a hole through the roof and lower their friend down. And at first Jesus says to them, your son, your sins are forgiven. People start looking around like, who does this guy think he is forgiving sins? Particularly a lot of the self-righteous religious people. So Jesus very simply says, you want to know that I can forgive this man's sin? Son, get up and walk. And again, immediately, the boy walks out. That in the coming of Christ, the ultimate spirit-filled man from God is bringing this word of freedom and comfort, a freedom that we have longed for. A message that we have waited in anticipation for centuries. And Jesus is the one who begins to push it back. I don't normally read from uh, theologians throughout history. and it's, it, it's not because they're not valuable. It's, it's honestly because I don't want you to think that uh, I'm smarter than I actually am. Uh, but I came across this quote from a theologian in the 300s, 300s AD, named Athanasius. He wrote a book called The Incarnation about this very moment when God takes on flesh. And he says, Now that Jesus has come to our world and taken up his abode in one body among his peers, the whole conspiracy of the enemy against mankind is checked. And the corruption of death, which, was before, which before was prevailing against them, is done away. Or as Paul would say, that the last enemy to de be defeated is death. That Christ simply in coming has broken the power of darkness. And broken the authority of death. And in his resurrection, the day is coming when he will finally lay death in its grave. The day is coming when there will finally be full restoration.
And I think back to that poor sweet woman, Jean, who spent days, weeks, and months wondering, has God forgotten me? I don't know what you believe about charismatic gifts or whether or not God still does miracles, but let me rock your world a little bit. Jean and her husband had done everything they could think of to help her. Medicine, pastors, everything. And yet still she couldn't, she couldn't shake it. And so her, her father-in-law and mother-in-law had attended this conference and heard this man that they had heard about who apparently God used to heal people. And so they came and they heard him and they went to him and said, would you please pray for our daughter-in-law? Here's the story. And he said, I would. And as he left, he started to pray for her. And he felt this urging to drive down from Los Angeles where he was to San Diego where this poor woman was in the Mesa Vista Psychiatric Hospital. And he didn't really even know her name. He just started praying for her. And he felt like God was saying, go to San Diego. And the closer he got, he said, hey, you're looking for a woman named Jean. She's in this hospital. So he shows up at the door and he's like, I don't really, I, don't, I think your name's Jean, but I don't know if anyone is even here with that name. And for whatever reason, the people at the door just said, yeah, come on in. So she finds this woman's room, and she goes up, he goes up to her, and he says, Jean, I, th- I think God wants me to pray for you. I think he's going to heal you. And since that day, Jean has spent her life telling people about the power of the Spirit-filled man from God. The only one who could save her. The only one who could give her a message of freedom and comfort and restoration. That man, Jesus Christ, who comes and offers to you now, if you have been waiting in anticipation, wondering, is God real? Is He there? Does He care? He has come for you to offer you the same freedom, the same comfort, same restoration that he offers to all of us if you just simply believe.